Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. A Christ-centered family in a me-centered world. And it seems like everybody is talking about the family. You've got people talking about family values. You've got dysfunctional families. We've got families that are on sitcoms. You've got weird sitcoms with weird families. You've got politicians that have gotten trouble with shenanigans they've done that have destroyed their families. I grew up in Colorado Springs, and in Colorado Springs we have focus on the family. Now, when I was in Colorado Springs and focus on the family came to Colorado Springs back in the early 90s, it kind of polarized the town. There were a lot of people that were against focus on the family coming into Colorado Springs, and you'd see these bumper stickers that say, focus on your own blank family. I don't know if you've seen those bumper stickers around. But there is a, a, this idea where the family is under attack in our culture today. Would you agree? I do not have to read to you statistics. I don't have to flash for you up here demographics to tell you that our nation is suffering an epidemic of dysfunctional families, of crumbling families, of fathers not stepping up to the plate and being the godly men they've called, that God's called them to be. We see marriages on the brink of divorce. We see the homosexual and the feminist lobby coming and trying to, t- to redefine for us what marriage is. Marriage is under attack today. And not only is marriage under attack, but we live in a me-centered world. A world where everything revolves around me. And this me-centered culture is shaping the values of our children and our youth. And if we're not careful, we can wake up and have a totally different world in which we live that's been shaped by this me-centered culture. Now, as we think about this me-centered culture that is attacking our families, there are three isms, three predominant isms that attack the family today. Narcissism, consumerism, and materialism. Let me talk about these three just real, real briefly this morning. N- narcissism. Now, what in the world is narcissism? Well, narcissism comes from Greek mythology. Narcissus was a, in Greek mythology, he actually was a young man who was punished by the gods to sit and look at himself in a reflecting pool. And he looked at himself in this reflecting pool all day long, every day, till where he became in love with himself. He was enamored with himself. He was so obsessed and focused on himself. And so narcissism is this idea that you are obsessed with yourself. You are highly absorbed in yourself. You're in love with yourself. Now, many of you are familiar with um, Dr. Drew, the pop psychologist that got famous back in the 90s on MTV. He's been on Oprah. He's been on other television shows. Uh, Dr. Drew did a uh, survey recently of the top 200 celebrities. In America, it was called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. And surprise, surprise, guess what he found out? Celebrities are more narcissistic than your average American citizen. Now, out of these 200 celebrities, who were the most self-absorbed, do you think? Female reality TV stars. The most narcissistic. In 2010, the American Society 
for aesthetic plastic surgery did a study. Going all the way back to 1997, when they started tracking these trends, and they found out that since 1997, cosmetic surgery procedures have increased 155%. In 2010, there were 9.5 million cosmetic surgeries in America. Narcissism. We are a culture that is in love with ourselves. And, and Timothy tells us that. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 2, Paul says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. People will be lovers of themselves. That's what narcissism is. We are in love with ourselves. Number two, consumerism. Consumerism is this ultimate need to consume. Whether it's toys or gadgets or video games or the latest and greatest boat or house or or social media or clothes or food, whatever it is, you want to consume things. You, you, You live for what this world has to offer you. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. It came out about 10 years ago. It's directed by Steven Spielberg. Um, It's called, uh, it's with Tom Cruise, Minority Report. Anybody ever seen that movie? Minority Report's an interesting movie. It takes place in the future. But one of the scenes in that movie that really struck with me was this whole idea of consumerism. Tom Cruise is walking through this mall. And he's got these retina scanners that are coming at him. And the retina scanners are reading his buying habits. And so these holograms start popping up from the Gap or Seiko or Banana Republic. And so all these holograms are are swirling around him, directing him to buy what they know he's bought in the past based upon these retina scanners. And I thought, man, that's not far off into the future. You walk into a virtual mall and these retina scanners start, holograms start coming at you and telling you what you want to buy. Do you guys know how much waste is generated in the U.S. each year? The United States has enough waste to fill a convoy of 10-ton garbage trucks 145,000 miles long. That's over halfway to the moon. We use that much stuff in a year in America. Ecclesiastes 1.14 I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Narcissism, we are in love with ourselves. Consumerism, everything serves us. The third one, materialism. It's this whole idea, it's, it's, it's linked to consumerism, but materialism is, I've got to accumulate for me wealth. The mighty dollar is the be-all, end-all of everything in my life. It makes you feel more superior, it makes you feel better about yourself. If you could just be materialistic and have all of these things. Now, our economy is $11 trillion. And basically, two-thirds of that is spent on consumer goods. Does anybody know how much money goes into the storage industry? We as Americans, I think, are the only culture that has storage. We store stuff because we have too much stuff. $12 billion industry. More than the record and music industry combined. And it's interesting, when you look at the buying power in America... Where is the buying power coming from? It's coming from teenagers and from youth. It's estimated that kids, kids have about $100 per week in buying power. 
And it's estimated that adolescents and children influence 20% of the spending and even up to 67% of the automobile purchases in America. And here's why most researchers believe that there's such high buying power among the teenagers and the youth. Most parents are too busy to spend quality time with their children, and so out of guilt, they buy stuff for their kids as a way to kind of make them feel better about themselves. So these kids have power over the purchases of their parents. Now, when you think about these three isms, narcissism, we're in love with ourselves, consumerism, we want to consume, materialism, we want to be the best and have the best and have all this wealth, we as Americans are facing an uphill battle when it comes to the Christian family, when it comes to being Christ-centered. Because the culture screams so loudly at us all the time that most of us, frankly, don't realize there's another alternative. Listen to what Proverbs says. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, I, I, I hope that you have a desire to have a Christ-centered family. Whether that's being a Christ-centered husband, a Christ-centered wife, a Christ-centered parent, a Christ-centered mom, a Christ-centered dad, a Christ-centered teenager, a Christ-centered child, however your family looks this morning, I hope you have a desire to be Christ-centered, which leads us to the ultimate question. How do we do it? How can we be a Christ-centered family in a me-centered world? Now, let me just tell you, in the past 30 years, there has been a proliferation of conferences, books, magazines, TV shows, focus on the family. We are in a day and age where we are not in a shortage of material on the family, are we? Probably in, in every age, that, in all the ages of church history, probably in the last 30 years, we have more information on the family than we've ever had. But is the family getting any better? Let me just stop and tell you from the very beginning. The answer is not found in techniques. It's not found in programs. It's not found in the latest, greatest fad from the latest, greatest teacher. It's not on parenting techniques. It's not even found in focus on the family. As great as these things are, I'm not against books. I'm not against conferences. I'm not against uh, resources. I'm not against those things. Retreats. But I'm afraid that most Americans want a quick fix answer. Give me the silver bullet, Pastor Sean, so I can fix my family. And we want to bypass what the Bible actually has to say about what a Christian family really is. And so before we even begin to understand the roles of a husband, the roles of a wife, the role of a parent, the role of a child, before we even begin to understand what is a Christian family, we've got to go back to the very beginning and lay a foundation, a theological foundation, a foundation about who God is. Because many times when we talk about family, when pastors begin to preach sermons on family, everybody wants to get to the how-to. Tell me how to do it, Pastor Sean. Let's get to the practical steps. Show me how to do this, and, I, and we'll get there. But oftentimes, we focus so much on the how-to that we forget the who or the what. Who it is that we're serving. 
So what I want to do this morning is I want to lay a foundation. Before we begin to talk about roles of husbands and wives and parents and children, we need to lay a theological foundation about who God is and what God has done. So here's our big idea for this morning. Here's the big biblical definition, the big idea that we're looking at this morning, and it's simply this. This is the foundation for where we're going over the next few weeks together in this sermon series, and it's this. The purpose of a Christ-centered family is to live for God's glory under His supreme sovereignty. That's the purpose of a Christ-centered family. It's to live for God's glory, first and foremost, under His supreme sovereignty. Now, let's look at this unfold as we go back to the very beginning. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. This is before the fall of Adam and Eve. This is the way God has instituted marriage and family from the very beginning. So I think it does us a good service to go back and see how it all began. So let's go back and look at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. And let's read this account from the very first pages of our Bibles. Genesis 2, starting in 15. The Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed." From this passage in Genesis, I want us to see three issues. Three overarching teachings, three overarching concepts, three overarching truths that will help us understand this overall picture of living for God's glory under His sovereignty as a Christ-centered family. So here's issue number one. First of all, this is where it all begins. God has sovereignly ordained and designed marriage the way that He ultimately wants it to be. God has ordained it. God has designed it. God has created it. Now, before we even get into this text, I want you to look at how many verbs are used of God. I mean, God is all over the place in this first chapter here, the second chapter. God took the man. God put the man in the garden. God said, God formed, God caused, God made, God brought. In the beginning, God created. From the very beginning of, this, of the, the Bible, we see that God is the sovereign creator of all things. He's the one who makes the rules. He's the architect. He's the initiator. He's in control. And notice his name. It says, the Lord God. The Lord God. Lord there should be in all caps in your Bible. 
It's the transliteration of the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh is the title of God, God's covenant name. It really means when you take Lord God together there in the Hebrew, the, the, the way it's conveyed in the original language is that God is the sovereign king, the sovereign king God, the ultimate God. The powerful, almighty creator, God. He's the one who's, who's making the rules. He's the one that's starting things. He's initiating things. He is the grand architect. He's supremely sovereign. And notice the very first thing out of God's mouth to the man. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded. God's relationship with humans from the very beginning was that of sovereign to creation. The Lord God commanded. He gave man a command. He said, you're free. You're free to eat of any tree in the garden except for one. The, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of it, you'll surely die. So God begins this whole thing with a command, which implies what? God is sovereign. God is holy. God is righteous. God is the one that's making the rules. God is the creator. We are the creation. And so contrary to popular belief, there is an absolute definition of marriage and family that comes directly from a sovereign God and we have no right to mess with it. We just can't. God has ordained it. God is the sovereign architect. God is the creator. God is the initiator. Now here's something that we need to understand this morning. The breakdown of the family is not a sociological issue, predominantly. Yes, you can blame the media, Yes, you can blame the culture. Yes, you can blame public schools. Yes, you can blame whatever you want to blame. You can blame um, the government. You can blame the media. And yes, they all play a role in that. But here's the issue with the family. And we've got to establish this from the very beginning. It is a theological breakdown, not a sociological breakdown. First and foremost, it's an understanding of who God is. Marriage is under attack today because our divine ruler is under attack today. Here's the issue. People don't want an authority in their life. They don't want to be held accountable to a creator. And so here's the issue. It's in a theological issue. Now, the Barna Group, if you believe a lot of their statistics, I'm not sure exactly how accurate they are, but they did an extensive survey. They did the religious beliefs of Americans spanning 20 years. Going back to 2000, or actually 1991 to 2011, they took 20 years, a slice of American demographics, and asked some questions about their religious beliefs. Very insightful. Let me give you the top three things that came back from this 20-year study of religious beliefs. Number one. The percentage of adults who can be classified as born-again Christians based upon their belief that they will experience eternal salvation, based upon their commitment to Jesus Christ, their personal confession of sin, and acceptance of Christ as their Lord and Savior, has risen five percentage points. In 91, the national estimate was 35% of adults meet those criteria. Currently, 40% of adults can be classified as born-again. He's saying that 40% of our population says, I am a born-again, regenerate believer in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I find that a little high, but maybe, maybe that's true. 40% of our culture. Now, here's the second question. When asked to choose one of several descriptions of God, the proportion who believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfect creator of the universe who still rules the world today currently stands at two-thirds of the public, 
That represents a seven-point drop from 1991. So, 67% of our population says God is the all-supreme sovereign ruler of the universe. Does 67% of our population live like that? Or do they give lip service that God is the all-sovereign ruler? And here's the last one that was very startling. The biggest shift has been in people's perception of the Bible. In 1991, 46% of adults strongly affirmed that the Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles it teaches. That has slumped to just 38% who offer the same affirmation today. 38% of people say, yes, the Bible is true. So I don't know what these statistics tell us, but I think what they tell us is there's a lot of people out there that give lip service to the Bible, that give lip service to God, that give lip service to Christianity, but do not live as if God is the ultimate authority in their lives. And it's affecting families. It's affecting marriages. It's affecting parenting. It's affecting Bible-believing Christians to adopt the worldview of our culture. So here's number one. Number one issue from Genesis, God has sovereignly and supremely defined and and organized and created and instituted marriage the way that he wants it to be, and we cannot, we cannot mess with it. Here's the second thing. God's plan for marriage is that it is to be a beautiful partnership. Notice what verse 18 says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, on the creation, the creation days, what did it say? The Lord God created, it was good, day one. Day two, it was good. Day three, it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And finally, God gets here and it says, it is not good. What's not good? It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. In the original Hebrew, it really means tailor-made. God will make a tailor-made helper Notice what it does not say. I will make a slave for him. I will make a subordinate for him. And notice, he doesn't ask Adam to do it. God says, I will do it. Adam, don't come up with your ingenuity and make a helper fit for you. You can't do that. I'm the creator. Let me do it. I will create a helper suitable for you. And as you read Genesis, you begin to wonder, well, this is a weird thing because the first thing that God does is he takes Adam through this painful object lesson of naming the animals. Why do you name the animals, Adam? We don't know how long it took, but I'm sure that, okay, that that looks like a hippopotamus. That's, I don't know what that is, a giraffe. Duckbill platypus, orangutan. He starts naming the animals. and, And he goes through this painful process and realizes, this is not a suitable helper for me. No offense, God, but these aren't like me. Yeah, the, 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 the monkey's kind of similar to me, but, but this is a painful object lesson, God. None of these helpers are fit for me. It's to heighten the appreciation when the woman comes on the scene. And notice God is sovereign again. God doesn't say, Adam, you take care of this. God says, no, I'm going to put you into a deep sleep. And I'm going to fashion the woman out of your rib. Now, you may ask the question, well, why did, he, why did he take the woman out of the rib? Well, I think Matthew Henry, the old commentator of old, probably gives the best description of why it was the rib. I, I love this quote. The woman is not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, 
under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be loved. Can't say it any better than Matthew Henry. The rib is this idea of soul, that Adam and Eve, a man and wife, are to be connected at their very soul. And God is still sovereign. Notice what God does here. Verse 22. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Picture in your minds with your sanctified imaginations for a moment, God walking Eve down the aisle and giving her to Adam. God in his sovereignty is performing the first marriage ceremony and he is bringing this woman to the man. God is orchestrating this union in his powerful sovereignty and the very first eruption, the very first word we had out of human beings in the history of the world is poetry. This at last. You want the translation in Hebrew? Yeehaw! It's literally how it's translated in Hebrew. Adam sees this woman, and for the very first time, he's like, Whoa! Whoa! This at last. Notice what he says. This at last. It's, it's not an orangutan. It's not a monkey. It's not a duckbill platypus. It's not a giraffe. This at last is bone of my bone. It's flesh of my flesh. This is another human being, but not just another human being. It's a distinctly different human being. This is woman. She's equal. She's a human being, but she's different. She's woman. She is a woman. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And it's interesting that Adam names her woman. We'll get to that in a few weeks. There's an equality in the order of creation between a man and a woman. Man and woman are created equal. But in God's economy of spiritual leadership in the home, the man is to be the spiritual leader. And so when Adam names his wife, it's to show that he has spiritual leadership. And we'll, we'll talk, I'm leaving that hanging out there. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. So again, we can't just arbitrarily define marriage based upon our culture. Who's doing the marriage ceremony here? God. Who's involved in the marriage ceremony? One man, one woman. Who's orchestrating this? God. God's defining it. God's instituting it. God's organizing it. God's creating it. God is the primary actor. And if God has defined marriage, do we have any business in undefining it or twisting it? Here's the third thing that we see from this passage of Scripture. Not only is God supremely sovereign over marriage, number two, not only is marriage to be this beautiful partnership between a man and a woman, but here's the third thing. God seals this marriage ceremony by defining it. How does God define marriage? A lifelong, one flesh covenant between one man and one woman. Let me unpack that for you for just a moment. It's a lifelong, till death do us part. It's a lifelong. Number two, it's a one flesh. When you begin married, you, are, you, you become one flesh. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. It is a covenant, not a contract, not a prenuptial agreement. It's a covenant, and it's between one man and one woman. Now, underneath this heading, we see three things that God calls the man and woman to do. Look at verse 24. We see these three things in verse 24. First of all, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Okay, young adults, there's such a thing called the boomerang effect. Don't do it. You know what the boomerang effect is? We leave and we keep coming back and we keep coming back. Now, I understand 
There's financial situations. There's tricky situations with with in-laws, and I understand all that. But God's design is that when you get married as a young couple, you are to leave your respective parents. You're to start your new life together. You're to be independent. You are to be financially and emotionally stable enough, especially men. If you're thinking about marrying a woman, make sure that you are not relying upon your parents to pay your car insurance. Okay? Guys, step up to the plate and be self-sufficient to leave your parents. Number two, they shall leave his father and mother. Number two, they will hold fast. The ESV here says hold fast. I think some translations say cleave, cling, stick like glue. God is very emphatic about the permanence of marriage is to be a lifelong. They are to cleave, come together as, as a covenant my grandparents just celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary. I can't imagine being married for 65 years. That, that is a blessing. That is a wonderful thing. And my grandparents have been through a lot in their life. A lot of things with my extended family. My extended family, to be honest with you, they're pretty dysfunctional. My, my, my uncles and my family. And so my grandparents have had to put up with a lot And in most circumstances, their marriage could have very easily just have split up. But they are in a model to me of a godly Christian couple who stuck with it through thick and thin 65 years of marriage. That's why when you say your wedding vows, what do you say? When I marry you, I make sure this is in your wedding vows. Through richer or poorer, through sickness and health, till death do us part. But then thirdly, Number one, you leave. Number two, you cleave. And number three, you become one flesh. Can't quite explain this mystical union of the one fleshness when a husband and wife come together. But God is so ordained that one man and one woman come together as one flesh. They come together spiritually. They come together emotionally. They come together sexually. They come together physically. They come together financially. They come together, and and, and they, they still have their respective personalities. They don't meld into one person, but two people come together, and something amazing happens where God knits them together as one flesh. It's an amazing thing that God does in marriage. So what is marriage? It's a lifelong, one flesh, covenant between one man and one woman. Marriage and family were designed by the master architect, the sovereign king. Now, when we start talking about marriage and family, we need to start with God. God's sovereign design, God's sovereign definition. And most of you will will sit here this morning and say, well, duh, Pastor Sean, we know that. We've read Genesis. We know that God created Adam and Eve. We know God's in control. We know all this. Get to the how-to. Tell us us how to have a better marriage. But here's the problem. How many of us actually submit to the authority of God to be the leader of our marriages? How many of us submit under the lordship of Christ? How many of us give lip service that God is to be the center, God is to be the architect, God is to be the sovereign? How many of us give lip service to that, but we don't actually surrender to that in our marriages? You may give lip service to it, but are you truly surrendering? So let me just give you a Surgeon's General warning this morning, okay? If you truly want a Christ-centered family, you will be radically different than the world around you. You'll be radically different than your friends, 
radically different than maybe some family members, radically different from everybody around you, and that may cause some discomfort because it will revolutionize the way you live because we have a me-centered world that's calling you to narcissism, to materialism, to consumerism, to tolerance, to all these different things. And if you decide and say, as a family, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent, whatever our family is, we are committing to live under the lordship of an almighty God. If you determine to do that, it may mean radical changes in how you live your life. Because here's the issue, contrary to popular opinion, your marriage is not your own. Your marriage and your family exist for a far greater purpose than just to serve you. Americans need to hear that. Your marriage doesn't exist for you. Your wife doesn't exist for you. Your husband does not exist for you. Your kids do not exist for you. Your parents do not exist for you. Why do they exist? Well, I'm glad you asked. What is the ultimate purpose for which you and I were created? Why were we created in the first place? Is it to have our best life now? Is it to build our own little kingdom so that we can have all these things? Is it to be in control of everything? Is it to drink your fill of narcissism and consumerism and materialism? Does your life exist for you? Most people, if you ask on the street, why does your life exist? They would say, my life exists for the maximum amount of pleasure that I can get out of life so that everything serves me. And if it doesn't serve me, I will move on to the next thing that serves me because it's all about me. That's the American ethos. What does the scripture say? Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, here's the key, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So why do we exist? For God's glory. For God's kingdom. For God's purposes. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, we say it a lot around here. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 10:31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all, do all to the glory of God. I came across an interesting quote this past week from Jonathan Edwards. And it really hit me the way that he talks about heaven, he talks about God, he talks about marriage and family. Let me listen, let me let me read to you what Jonathan Edwards has said. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. If we're not careful, as great as the family is, as great as we talk about husbands and wives, there is an inherent danger when we begin talking about marriage and family, that we can make marriage and family an idol. We can make an idol out of the family. We can make an idol out of our husbands. We can make an idol out of our wives. We can make an idol out of our children. And I think in a lot of American culture, we tend to idolize things. We're, we're the home of American Idol. And it's not just a singing competition. It's the lifestyle that we live. 
So let's not make an idol as great as husbands and wives are, as great as our children are. They are never to take the place of God in your life. If you are looking for your wife to complete you, or your husband to complete you, or your children to complete you, you will never be satisfied. They were not created to complete you. Only God was. And when you try to put pressure on your husband and wife to complete you or to satisfy you, you've elevated them to a position that they can never fulfill, and they become an idol, and they will always disappoint. The only person that can truly satisfy is Christ alone in his glory. So let me say this again. The biggest issue facing our culture today is not more techniques, it's not more steps, it's not more conferences, it's not more books, as helpful as those things are. It's a recovery of who God is. Most American Christians, not talking about the big bad world out there, most American Christians have no idea who God is and what God has done. The true living God of the Bible. Let me give you a quote from R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite quotes from him. God is too great for us. He's too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He's the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In his presence, we quake and tremble. Meeting him personally may be our greatest trauma. And for some of us this morning, we may need to get very much acquainted with this mysterious stranger who's going to threaten our security. God will threaten your security. But that's a good thing. Because he doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants to move you to where he wants you to be. So for some of us this morning, we may need to repent. Just repent of idolatry. Repent of the American dream of consumerism and narcissism and materialism. Repent of trying to elevate the family to a position that it was never meant to be elevated to as something that completes us. Listen to James 4, 8 through 10. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Draw near to God. And what's the promise? He will draw near to you. For some of us this morning, we just need to draw near to God and say, God, I know my family's not the way it should be. I know that my marriage is not the way it should be. And I'm going to draw near to you with the promise that you draw near to me. Oftentimes, couples come into my office for marriage counseling. And here's often what they'll say to me. Can you fix him? Or can you fix her? And I look them straight in the eyes and say, I can't fix anybody. If you're, if you're here looking for somebody to fix you, you've come to the wrong place. I don't have Mr. Fix-It on the, on the outside of my office. I can't fix you but I can point you to the one who can fix you. His name is Jesus Christ, the Savior. So if you're here this morning and you've never met this Savior, Jesus Christ, you can't even begin to have the family that God has called you to have. You can't even begin to be the husband or the wife or the child or the parent that God's called you to be unless you've been connected with Jesus Christ. And so here's the invitation this morning. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, 
You've never repented of your sins. You've never seen the fact that you are a sinner and you're separated from this holy God and you need Christ alone as your only Savior to forgive you of your sins and you need to cry out to him for forgiveness. What better day than today to cry out to Jesus and the the Bible promises all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon Jesus today and say, Jesus, I need you to fix me. I've come into this church this morning looking for answers and I don't know where to find them. And, I, and, I, and I'm maybe some, listen to this guy rant and rave from the pulpit up here. don't know what he's talking about. I'm broken. I'm, I'm distraught. I don't know what's going on in my life. The only thing I can do is cry out to you, Jesus. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus meets you right where you are and he saves you and he cleanses you and he forgives you and he enters right into that brokenness and says, your brokenness does not intimidate me. If anybody experienced brokenness, it was Jesus when he died on that cross and shed his blood. So don't think you have a problem too big for Jesus. Jesus took upon your sin. That's a big problem. If you're coming into this room this morning thinking, I have huge problems and God could never touch me, God could never help me, look to the cross and realize that God proved his love for you then by saying no problem, no issues too big for Christ. So come to Jesus this morning. He alone is worth it. He alone is worth it. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. As we close our time together, as we, as we think about being a Christ-centered family, it all starts with a humble humility and a submission to the absolute authority of God in our lives as our sovereign. So I have two things this morning. One, for those of you that do not have Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've come in here and you've got major problems and, you, and you're not quite sure about your relationship with Christ and, and you know that you don't have him as your Lord and Savior, today, would you cry out to Jesus to save you? Would you confess him as Lord? Would you repent and believe in him as your Lord and Savior today? That's the first, the first group of people. The second group of people are those that are here this morning that are already believers. You're already Christians. And you definitely want God to work in your hearts and your lives. And it's just a matter this morning and maybe just repenting of any idolatry that you have in your heart. Realizing that God is sovereign, that God is powerful, that God ordains and designs your life for his glory. So would you spend some time in prayer this morning, seeking the face of the Lord, just asking him to search your heart. you that you reach down into the depth of our sin, the depth of our helplessness, the depth of our pit of, of despair, and you lift us out. You lift us out of the mud and mire, and you set us on a rock, and you put a new song in our hearts. And Lord, for many this morning, there may be many here that are just in a pit of despair. Or maybe they have a hopeless attitude that, that, about their marriage or maybe a hopeless attitude about their children. Lord, whatever it is, they may just be flooded with hopelessness. Would you come in the midst of that hopelessness and bring the hope of the gospel that Christ alone can redeem, Christ can transform, Christ can fix, Christ can do miracles. Lord, if there are marriages on the brink in this very room this morning, Lord, come to those people and show them that you can revive and renew and restore marriages for your glory. Father, to those that are worried about wayward children, that are walking away from you and making decisions that are rebellious, show them that there is hope in the gospel this morning. Lord, if there's children or youth here that are having a hard time obeying their parents or or relating to their parents, help them to show them there's hope there for them. Lord, wherever we need hope this morning, we know that you are the God of all hope. So would you come and would you minister to us? Would you let us know that you, you are the answer, Jesus? 
Help us to submit under the sovereignty of an almighty God who has the absolute right to define marriage the way you want it to be, God. And forgive us when we want to change it. Forgive our nation for wanting to change it. Father, we're a lot like Isaiah, who said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Father, we live among a nation of not just unclean lips, but of rebellious hearts against your authority. And as much as it scares me to see the rebelliousness in our culture, Lord, what scares me more is to see the rebellion in my own heart. So, Lord, start with us as your people. Help us to repent of any rebellion, any stubbornness that we may have against your absolute lordship over our lives. Would we surrender to you as king? We ask this in the strong name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.